Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that his beauty would rest upon us and that we, because of what happens here, would become more and more conformed to that image so that we might shine forth in beauty the glory and the excellencies of our Savior Jesus. So we pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Frank Capra's film, It's a Wonderful Life, there's this great scene at the beginning of the film where George Bailey and his girl Mary are walking down the sidewalk together after the school dance. They had all fallen into the pool, they're drying off, and they're walking home at night. They're falling in love with each other, but they don't really know it yet. And in fact, their banter back and forth shows that they're tiptoeing around the issue and the entire scene is them walking along and flirting with one another, but never really getting to the point, the fact that they're smitten with each other. And so they're walking along, and there's this old guy sitting on the front porch, eavesdropping on this reticent conversation that he's hearing between these two young people. And after he'd heard enough of George's hesitation and filibustering, he finally just blurts out, why don't you just kiss her instead of talking her to death. And he's just frustrated. And then he, he says, youth is wasted on the wrong people. And then he storms off and he goes back into the house. How many of you who have some years under your belt have ever felt like that old man? You think that youth is wasted on all the wrong people. If you were young again, you would know better what to do than what these young people are doing today. It is so funny, I'm watching myself cross over this divide between what I was to get off of my lawn. <laughs> I feel it coming on all the time. How many of you have ever felt like that? How many of you have ever daydreamed about going back in time to when you were young Knowing what you know now and taking it back to then. Anybody ever done that daydream? I do this daydream a lot, actually. And uh, if you've had this daydream, you're daydreaming about how much better you could have navigated your young life having the wisdom and experience that you have now. If you could take everything you know now and go back in time and do it all over with the wisdom you have now, but put it then, what would that be like? I've had this daydream for my entire adult life, rehearsing different aspects of my past. What would I have done differently? But in these, and I would have been a real hero <laughs> in all of these daydreams, by the way. But in these later years, it's finally occurred to me what a foolish idea and what a foolish wish that is. If I were to go back to my youth and redo the things, knowing everything, knowing everything, that I know now, it would actually be crushing. Because not only would I bring with me the wisdom about how to live, but I would also carry with me the burden of knowledge of things to come. I would know, for example, that my roommate in seminary would die of a massive heart attack in his 30s while his wife is seven months pregnant with their first child. I would know that my sister's husband would have a massive stroke in 2011 and make it to where he needed full-time care for years on end. I would know that my best friend's mother would die way too young and that she wouldn't be able to overcome the colon cancer. I would know that my buddy from high school would die in an F-16 crash during training for Desert Storm, leaving a, a wife and a widow and alone to care for their children. I, when I think back, if I knew everything then that I know now, the burden of it would be crushing. 
Who could live with that knowledge? Only God can handle all of that, and that's why it's best for us not to know the future. If we could take a time machine back and redo our youth, the only way it would be tolerable is if we went back and did it over without knowing what we know. We would have to surrender that knowledge. That's the only way it would be bearable. And going back on those terms would be unthinkable. And this is the, and I'm leading up to this question. Would you be willing to go back and forfeit everything that you've learned? Would you be willing to forfeit everything you've learned and trade it for youth? Would you be willing to lose the wisdom of years that you have now? Would you face all the challenges that you've faced in your life for a second time, not knowing any better than you did the first time? Would you do that? Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. How mysterious are his ways to us indeed. If we could redo our lives according to our plan and not his providence, do we really think that we would do it better? We wouldn't. We can't do it better. If we were to rewrite the script, we would make it worse. If we were wise, we would understand how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding, for its profit is better than the profit of silver and its gain than fine gold. And we would realize that it's better to have wisdom than it is to have youth. And we wouldn't want to rewind the clock and trade away wisdom for anything, not even for youth. Because the light of wisdom far outstrips the naivete of youth. And if we were thinking rightly, we would never wish to go back on those terms. I'm, I'm drawing these thoughts out because I think Paul is drawing out a similar kind of contrast between the old and new covenants in the passage that we have before us this morning. If you haven't already, I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3 and verses 1 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 11. At the end of chapter 2, Paul compares his own ministry to some of the huckster teachers that have come through the Corinthian church. And he says, speaking of himself, that we are not like many peddlers of the word of God, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak. And he's saying that there were some people coming around and they're treating, they're like peddlers. They're like selling the word of God. They're doing their ministry for money. He says that these people were around and so apparently there were some false teachers who had infiltrated the church. We'll find out who, more specifically about who they are in chapter 11. And Paul says that he's not like them. They're hirelings, they're doing their faux ministry for the paycheck, and they're not faithful to the gospel message. And Paul says that his suffering for the gospel distinguishes him from such teachers. That's what we saw last time at the end of chapter 2. We're not like many. We're being led forth in God's triumphal procession in Christ, and we're like slaves in that procession. We're suffering in that procession. So his ministry is not like theirs. Paul says that his suffering for the gospel is distinguishing him from those kinds of teachers. And in the passage that we're about to read today, he points to another difference between him and the other teachers. Those teachers need recommendation letters before people will accept their ministry. But Paul says that he needs no such recommendation letter. If they understood the nature of the new covenant, they would understand that its glory far surpasses what came before, and that glory is what confirms his ministry to them. So three steps in Paul's argument, as we'll look at these 11 verses, here they are. We'll see the new covenant as Paul's recommendation in verses 1 through 3. We'll see the new covenant as Paul's sufficiency in verses 4 through 6. And we'll see the new covenant as greater glory in verses 7 through 12. So the new covenant as Paul's recommendation, the new covenant 
as Paul's sufficiency and the new covenant as greater glory. So the first item here is the new covenant as Paul's recommendation. Everybody look at verse 1. Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Just a reminder here that Paul is still using that figure of speech that we've called the apostolic we throughout this passage, which means that every time you see we and us, you need to be thinking I and me. So when he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, he means, am I beginning to commend myself again? And so the question then becomes, well, when did he commend himself? What is he referring to? Well, if you remember back to chapter 1, in verse 12, he says this, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely toward you. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. And so in chapter 1, in this example, he commends himself, and he is going to have to commend himself to them again. He's going to have to say, listen, this is why you should be listening to me, an apostle, and not to these false teachers who are running around the church. So he's going to have to do this because of unfavorable comparisons that some of the people in the congregation were making between him and these other teachers, some of them false teachers. There was one guy who was an opponent who raised up. And so they're making these false comparisons, and one of the comparisons is mentioned here in verse 1. Do we need, as some do, some of these other people who are peddling the word of God, do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? So some teachers made their way to Corinth. Those teachers who came, they had letters of recommendation, apparently from other churches. And those letters were to authenticate their ministry. You can see this in Scripture. There's nothing wrong with these. I mean, it happened when Apollos, in Acts chapter 18, wanted to travel from Ephesus to Corinth. It says that the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So Apollos, unknown there, he's got a letter of recommendation, takes it with him, and he goes and ministers in Corinth. And we know he had a pretty successful ministry in Corinth. It was a letter of recommendation. Numerous times, Paul himself writes these letters of recommendation. He includes them in the letters of the New Testament. Romans chapter, uh, what is it, 16? I commend to you Phoebe, right? He's recommending her. <clears throat> and so this was not uncommon. If you wanted to be well-received in a congregation to whom you are a stranger, these kinds of letters could be essential if you were unknown to them. But Paul's asking a rhetorical question here. Notice what he says. Do I have need of a letter of recommendation, either to you or from you? Now, it's a rhetorical question that if you're looking at it in the original, it's not as clear in English, but it's clear in the original that the rhetorical question expects a negative answer. It requires a negative answer. The answer to that is no, I don't need a, re a letter of recommendation. And so it's the equivalent of saying, I don't need a, a recommendation letter. I don't need one in order to minister to you, and I don't need one from you to recommend me elsewhere. My ministry stands on its own. Why doesn't he need that kind of a letter? Well, it's because he already has one. Look at verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul's basically saying, why would I need a letter of recommendation when I've got you? Your conversion to Christ is my letter of recommendation. And so Paul's recalling at this point his initial preaching to them in Corinth when they were just a bunch of blind pagans without God and without hope in the world. Who was it that came to them and preached to them and saw them converted to Christ? Who stayed with them, evangelizing them and discipling them? It was Paul who did this. And it's absolutely insane that any of those rascals in Corinth should ask him for a letter of recommendation. You know, before COVID started, I used to, uh, back in the old days, I would take the interns every fall 
to um, uh, Washington, D.C. for a pastor's conference. And it would take, it was called, it's called a weekender. Susan never really cared for this. My wife, Susan, never really cared for this trip. She has nothing against the weekender, but it, it's not a weekend. It takes five days. So when we take this trip, I'm gone for five days. And so when I leave, she is there at home by herself, caring for four children for five days in a row. She's running the house. She's doing the homeschooling. And she's doing all of it, running them around wherever they've got to go for five days. And so she does this happily, right? She's, she's a great supporter. But it's, all, it's a haul for her for those five days that, that I'm gone. One of these days, Lord willing, we'll be able to do that trip again. And I'll be back to tell her, sweetie, we're going to start this trip up again. So I want you to imagine this conversation with me. Hey, babe, it looks like we're going to be able to go to this conference again this year. I'm going to be gone for five days, just like it used to be. But I need to have a conversation with you about my leaving. I know that I'm going to leave you alone with the kids and all the myriad responsibilities that that entails. I'm concerned about that. I want to be a sensitive husband. So what I'm going to need from you are some letters of recommendation. I would feel much better about leaving if I could get someone that I could trust to vouch for your ability to handle all of this. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just going to have to get somebody else to take care of things while I'm gone. So just gather that together and bring it to me, please. Now, how's she going to receive that? She's not going to receive that well. Uh, and she shouldn't receive, receive it well because it's absurd. She's been caring for these children for years. She is the main administrator of their lives, and she has been for years. She feeds them. She educates them. She clothes them. She's taught every single one of them how to read. She's the only person on the planet who was nurturing and caring for them before they were even born. She gave birth to these children, and there's literally no one else on the planet better positioned to care for them than her. And it's absurd for me to ask for a resume when the very existence of these four healthy, literate, loved, fed children are all the resume that she's ever going to need. The real question is not, what are we going to do when daddy's gone? The real question is, is what in the world are we going to do if mama were ever gone? That's the real question. It's insane for there to be any question about her ability and motivation to care for our children. That's what Paul means when he says to them, you're my letter. They were lost and without hope and without God in the world. And then one day Paul shows up in Corinth. They were just pagans. There was no Christianity there. There was a synagogue there. But there was no Christianity there. There were a bunch of pagans. Paul comes to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. He starts preaching in this synagogue until they kick him out because they don't want him in there. It says great opposition from the Jews is rising up. He moves right next door to a house, right next door to the synagogue. He starts preaching in that house. And guess what happens? The leader of the synagogue, Crispus, gets saved. God just saves him. Crispus gets saved. And then all these Gentiles and Crispus are coming to the faith now. And they're meeting in this house next to the synagogue. And the Lord is adding to their number. He's preaching and the spirit of God shows up in power. There's all this opposition, and Paul is with them, he says, in much weakness and fear and trembling. So Jesus shows up to Paul in a vision one night and says, don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Apparently, the opposition was so bad, Paul was ready to take off. And so Jesus has to show up and say, no, you stay. There's opposition you stay and you preach. And as a result of that, Paul stays. He labors there. He stays for a year and a half. And guess what? Paul gives birth to the Corinthian church. He labored among the church and he shepherded the church in person through their infancy, which is more than can be, can be said for many of the churches that he ministered to. He wasn't with all these other churches he went to for a year and a half, but he was with them for a year and a half. The Corinthians were there for all that, and now someone is suggesting that he needs a letter of recommendation? 
please. Paul says, you yourselves are my letter of recommendation. And that letter has been written on my heart to be known and read by all. Paul says the letter is on his heart in the sense that he carries the news of their conversion with him wherever he goes. And the news of their conversion and church planting is confirmation to other churches of Paul's authority and apostleship. Their existence testifies to his authenticity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 2, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul says, I don't need another letter. I've got all the letters I'll ever need in you. Verse 3 says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so now Paul is getting deep with them because verse 3 is Paul making direct allusions to Ezekiel's prophecies about the new covenant. Ezekiel never uses the phrase new covenant, but we believe it'll be clear here that he's referring to the new covenant. But Ezekiel in chapter 11 and verse 19 says this, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And then in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verses 26 to 28, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. Paul's saying, what I gave birth to when I was with you was a powerful manifestation of the Spirit that did a work on your heart that cannot be explained any other way other than that God did this. What happened in your hearts through my ministry was nothing less than the fulfillment of the new covenant ministry of the Spirit. I didn't write on your heart, Paul's saying. God wrote on your heart, and through the Spirit, he used me as his writing instrument. So you notice there the language. He says, You're a letter of Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Catch that there. What's more impressive, a man writing with a pen and ink on paper or God writing on the heart through the Spirit? And the answer is obvious. Even if you consider the very best of human writing, if you, I don't know, Shakespeare, Tolstoy, whatever you think the very best is, it wouldn't hold a candle to the glory and the beauty and the miracle of God writing the new covenant on the human heart. There's nothing more beautiful, no more beautiful writing than that. So Paul is invoking this new covenant to them and saying, are you marveling at what God has done in you? Have you forgotten? And I think the same question is for us. Do we marvel as we should at the fact that God, through the Spirit, has written on our hearts? The truth is, we are no different than the Corinthians apart from grace. We are without hope and without God in the world. And we are dead in trespasses and sins. And what has come to us through Christ? Jesus Christ dies on the cross, raises from the dead, pays for our sins, reconciles us to God. And then he inaugurates this new covenant through all of this, which is a giving of the Spirit to us that changes us and transforms us and empowers us. And he promises to never take it away. Do we perceive the miracle that God himself has turned our hearts away from foolishness and idolatry and has caused us to be worshipers of the world's true and coming king? God has erased your indifference towards these true world-shattering things. And guess what? You would still be indifferent towards them 
if God hadn't have done this through the Spirit. God has erased that indifference. And he's made you into a worshiper of the true and coming king. Paul says that covenant is all the letter of recommendation that he will ever need. And he's presuming that everyone understands the world-shattering impact of the new covenant. Do we see that? Well, Paul speaks of the new covenant as his recommendation to the Corinthians. That's the first thing. But the second thing, he speaks of the new covenant as his sufficiency. The new covenant as Paul's sufficiency. Everybody look at verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. The ministry of the new covenant is the basis of Paul's confidence. That's what he means by that. It's why Paul doesn't slink away in the face of opponents who rise up against him in Corinth. It's why he doesn't back down in the face of false teachers. Because such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. His confidence is that the powerful presence of the Spirit in his ministry, that's what's going to prevail. But notice, that's not self-confidence, and it's not self-sufficiency. Notice he says in verse 5, not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. In verse 5, Paul's answering the question that he raised in chapter 2 and verse 12. Do you remember that question? Who is sufficient for these things? Now he's saying our sufficiency is from God. Because the question is indeed, who is sufficient for a ministry of preaching a gospel that brings suffering? Who can do that? Paul says, I'm not sufficient for it, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So again, God is the agent and Paul is merely the instrument in this work. Paul is not holding the hammer, driving the nail. God holds the hammer, driving the nail, and Paul is the hammer. But he is a tool in the hands of Almighty God. All of Paul's fruitfulness in ministry, therefore, happens because of what God is doing, not because of what Paul is doing on his own. Notice there in verse 6, God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And there it is. Paul says that the one who enabled him to get that letter written on their hearts was not himself, neither Paul, nor me, nor you, nor any other person is sufficient within themselves to engrave a new covenant on someone's heart. You can take out a pen and you can write on somebody's chest, but you can't write on their heart. And Paul says that the only reason his ministry was effective was not... It was not because he had the most, you know, the best preaching. He didn't. It was not because he had the most polished rhetoric. He didn't. It wasn't because he could dazzle them with his best public relations strategy and programming. He couldn't. All he had was the word of God and the spirit of God. If you don't take anything else from this sermon, hear that. All he had was the word of God and the spirit of God. Of God and the Spirit of God works through His Word, and there's nothing that can stop the Spirit. Paul can get the message to their ears, but it's the Spirit that takes it to their hearts. And that is where all of Paul's confidence is. Such is our confidence in Christ before God. It's in the Spirit. Why? Because Paul knows that this is what God promised His people He would do. Way back in Jeremiah. Way back in Jeremiah is where you see this initial promise of the new covenant. In fact, in the whole Old Testament, there's only one mention explicitly of that phrase, new covenant. There's lots of prophecies about the new covenant, but there's one explicit mention of new covenant. And it's in Jeremiah chapter 31. You don't have to turn there, but let me read to you in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. It says this, Behold... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is Jeremiah before the exile saying that, look, judgment's coming, 
But on the other side of this judgment, there's going to be a regathering and a return from exile. And the days are coming that at some point after that return, after this restoration, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And we all know that covenant that God made with Moses at Sinai. And Moses brings it down to the people and they have the law at this point. He's saying, no, 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 no. This new covenant's not going to be like that one in some important respects. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And I will, be, um, I will uh, put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so here in chapter 3, it's obvious that Paul is keying in on what Jeremiah prophesied about the new covenant, where he says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The new covenant are going to be the terms upon which God is going to be the God of his people. I will be their God. They shall be my people. It's going to be the terms upon which there's going to be forgiveness of sins for everybody that's in the covenant, for everybody knowing God so that nobody has to say, no God, no God. No, this new covenant terms are laid out. And so this is the background of everything Paul's saying here in chapter 3. He's talking about how the new covenant excels the old covenant. But he's taking this from Jeremiah because Jeremiah was saying essentially the same thing. Paul knows that the power for his ministry comes from the Spirit of God, not from himself. And it's a powerful fulfillment of this new covenant prophecy from Jeremiah. But this is where Paul's sufficiency lies. It's not in himself. It's in what God is doing and has been doing since before he was born. You know, at the end of the movie, uh, Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks' character finds himself in this Small military unit. They've been looking for this guy, trying to bring him home. And they have a, a mission here at the end of the movie where they have to defend this bridge. And they're outnumbered. They're completely outgunned. There's no way that they're going to win the battle that's coming towards them with these throngs of Germans who have tanks and all these other things. But they decide they're going to stay and try to hold this bridge, and they stay for the fight. And during the fight, his unit gets decimated, and in the final climactic scene, they have to retreat across the bridge. If they can't keep him from getting on the bridge, they have to blow up the bridge. So he runs across the bridge, grabs the detonator, and he's going to blow up the bridge, and then the, the detonator gets blown out of his hands, and they can't even blow up the bridge. And he's just laying there. Um, he gets shot, and this tank is coming straight at him across the bridge. And all he's got left is his pistol. And so he pulls his pistol out, and he's laying there with his legs sprawled in front of him, and he just starts, bam, bam. He's just shooting this pistol at this tank, and there's, there's, it's doing nothing. But he's shooting, bam, bam, and then this tank explodes on his last shot. And he's like, what happens? And then he looks up. Just then, this plane roars overhead. And it turns out that on his last shot, this plane had just dropped this bomb on this tank and completely destroyed it. And the, these unseen pilots overhead are the ones who come in and actually save Private Ryan at the end of the day. It wasn't his shot, but it was this power from above. Did Hanks and his buddies hold the bridge? Well, yeah, they did. But who really held the bridge? This power from above. I think our efforts at ministry are a lot like that. And in that sense, they're a lot like the Apostle Paul's. We're not receiving direct revelation like Paul was. We're not being caught up into the third heaven or performing miracles in the same way that Paul was. So that's not what I mean. What I do mean is that for both Paul and us, we can never take credit for any fruit that we bear in life or in ministry. 
There is a power that is working within us that is accomplishing it, this work through us. Every single bit of the fruit that happens in our lives is a result of the new covenant grace of God working through us. All we can do is trust in God to do the work. And here's the thing. What does that trust look like? What are we going to do if we believe that God is the one who has to do this work? This is what I want you to be asking yourself. It's not just a state of mind that I'm calling for here. Because there is something that you're supposed to, to, to do. The most tangible way that we can display our trust in him is to avail ourselves of the means of grace that he's given to us. God has given to us particular means for ministry. Our use of those means, our trusting in the Lord that he works through those means shows that we trust in him. And it means that we're relying on grace when we rely on the means that he has appointed to us. So we're ministers of the new covenant. We're ministers of reconciliation. How are we going to evangelize our neighbors? How are we going to raise kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? How are we going to make sure that we don't fall off the wagon of the faith ourselves? How are we going to be and to do what God has called us to be and to do? It's not going to be by all of our best efforts at having the best programs, the best planning, the best technology, or the best whatever. It's going to happen when we faithfully give ourselves over to the ministry of the word of God. That's how it's going to happen. And we can get a lot of that other stuff wrong and still be okay. But if we get that part wrong, we're not okay. And we have no more ministry. We're putting all of our eggs in one basket. The spirit of God working powerfully through the word of God in our midst. We are going to proclaim the word from this pulpit. We are going to sing the word in our worship. We are going to pray the word in our petitions. And we're going to display the word in our communion meal. And we're going to share this word with our neighbors. The way that we show our confidence in God's work to save and sanctify his people is by understanding we can't do it. We are relying on the spirit of God and the spirit of God works through his word. We resolve to know nothing and to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul said. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2. 2. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Which means I just preached and preached and preached. And so Paul saw the spirit of God coming together with the word of God and seeing it bear fruit for ministry. He said, I didn't do that. I just availed myself of the means of grace that God had given to me. If we are going to be faithful in ministry, if we're going to have any fruit at all in this church, it's going to be because of that. It's not going to be because we've come up with some new thing. It's, become, it's going to be because we're relying on the old things. So Paul speaks of the new covenant as Paul's recommendation. He speaks of the new covenant as his sufficiency. Finally, the new covenant as greater glory. Everybody look at verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now, to understand what he's saying at verse 7, we need to track back to verse 6. At the end of verse 6, notice what he says there. He says, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is not a hermeneutical principle as some of the ancients have it. This is a contrast between what the law does apart from grace and what the Spirit does by grace. The letter of the law kills because it doesn't provide what it demands. The letter of the law spells out a righteous standard, but it doesn't by itself give the power to obey it. For that reason, the letter of the law doesn't save us from sin. It exposes our sin. 
Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul says it this way. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what does the law do? It has a number of different functions, but Paul's focusing on one function right here. And he is saying that the law functions like a big spotlight on our sin. It spotlights our guilt. It spotlights the fact that we deserve punishment and death. In that way, the law kills. But, he's saying, the Spirit gives life. The Spirit enables the sinner, by grace, to do what the law demands because the Spirit doesn't engrave on tablets of stone, but on the tablet of the heart. So the law is a ministry of death, in verse 7, because apart from grace, it can only expose the sinner and show that he's worthy of death. Even so, Paul says, that law carved on stones, it, it came with glory. So some people think, you know, Paul's just always dogging on the law. That's not true. There's different uses of the law. He'll say in Romans 7, the law is holy and righteous and good. He's not dogging on the old, it's, it's God's revelation. But when you just have commands engraved on stones apart from grace, you're not, you're not going to get salvation out of that. So Paul says, even, even though he recognizes that the law carved on stones came with glory. And notice, you know, you know what he's referring to here, right? He's, he's referring to, when he says the law carved on stones came with glory, he's referring back to Exodus chapter 34. Where Moses, you remember, is coming down from the presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai. And the children of Israel, when they see Moses after he's been with the Lord on Sinai, and he comes down with the tablets... It says the children of Israel are terrified to see Moses. They don't even want to look at Moses. Whatever this glory of God was that Moses was in the presence of is now shining off of his face. And there's some supernatural presence that's emanating from Moses' face, and the people don't even want to look at him. They're terrified to look at him. And so he's putting a veil over his face to keep them from the terror. When he comes down from the mountain, he'll, he'll speak to them. And then that glory, that's whatever it is on his face, it eventually fades. So the law, the tablets, came with glory, right? Moses comes down from the mountain with glory on his face. But notice what Paul says at the end of verse 7. Even though Moses' ministry of the law has glory in it, enough glory to terrify the people, it's still a fading glory. But if that ministry of death had glory, that fading glory, won't the ministry of the unfading, unstoppable spirit have even more glory? That's the reasoning. The answer is, of course it will. Verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. There is glory in the law, which only brings condemnation apart from grace, how much more glory must there be in a ministry that brings righteousness to sinners? And we know that the new covenant does bring righteousness. It gives us a new standing with God. It takes a, a relationship that was completely broken by sin, and it reconciles us to him, and it makes it to where God can treat us as if we were actually righteous, even though we're still sinners. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God, Paul will say. In 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 21. So verse 10, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, that fading glory on Moses' face, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The point here is simply this. Yes, there was a glory in the law of God as Moses brought it down from the mountain. But that glory doesn't even hold a candle to the ministry of the Spirit. Both are God's work. Both are good. Both are God's revelation. But God has saved the very best for last. The ministry of Christ through the Spirit outshines everything that came before how many of you have ever been stumbling around your house in the dark at night and the only thing you have is your phone? 
And so you pull your phone out and you use it as a flashlight. But you don't use the, the flashlight that comes on on the back. I have mine set to where it'll just shake on. You turn it around and you use the face as the flashlight. And you use the face to sort of, you know, light everything up. I just lost my clock when I did that. You, <laughs> you all don't want that to happen. Um, but you've used your phone as, as, a, as a light before, right? <clears throat> you do that because it, in the dark, when everything's really, really dark, your, the face of your phone is enough illumination so you can see your feet, you can see obstacles, you don't have to trip over things or step on a Lego or whatever. It's real light and it's really helpful when you're groping in the dark. But how many of you have taken out your phone when you're at the beach at high noon? And your spouse says, honey, could you hand me a drink from the cooler? And you're like, let me get my phone out so that I can see. <laughs> Nobody does that. You don't do that because the light from your phone isn't worthy to be compared to the light from the sun. The light from the sun doesn't take away the light from your phone. It still has light coming out of it. It just provides so much illumination that you can even see your phone better than you could when you, it was just the screen shining in a dark place. You can see the whole thing better. And there is more light than ever came before. That is what the ministry of the Spirit is compared to the ministry of death. The law never could enable what the law demands. The Spirit not only can enable what the law demands, it also brings light and life and salvation to anyone who believes in Christ. There isn't just light for you, there's light for the whole world in the ministry of the Spirit. This Holy Spirit New Covenant ministry is Paul's ministry. And it's the New Covenant letter that the Spirit has written on the hearts of the Corinthians. That's what it is. That letter has so much more glory and power and consequence than anything that is coming from these most likely Judaizing false teachers that have come through Corinth. How could you even compare them? How could you expect to produce a better letter of recommendation than the new covenant? There is no letter better than the one that's already been written in their hearts. And if somebody comes along and starts calling you back to the cell phone as if there's not another light shining, you have to view that as absurd. The wisdom that you had as a child is nothing compared to the wisdom that you have now as an adult. You would never want to go backwards if you were thinking rightly. The light of your phone is nothing compared to the light of the sun. You would never want to go back. The light of the law alone is nothing compared to the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. There's a reason the apostles speak the way they do about Jesus. John chapter 1 and verses 16 to 18 for of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. What about Moses? Didn't he see God? God had to protect Moses from seeing him fully. So Moses wouldn't get vaporized. And he saw probably the most. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. That's where our greater glory is. It's in Jesus who is the image of the invisible God in our midst, affecting a new covenant, writing it on our hearts through the Spirit. Have you ever considered what glory that you and I get to experience through the Spirit, having written the new covenant on our hearts? We know more of God's purposes in the world than Isaiah and Jeremiah. We know more than David and Solomon about God's ultimate disposition of the world. We know more than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons of Israel. We know more than all of them because we know Jesus. We know the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's what we know. Listen, if you are here this morning 
and this light has never been shed abroad in your heart? In other words, you don't know this gospel. You don't know this new covenant because you don't know Jesus. You need to know that Jesus is the most extraordinary human being that's ever lived because he was and is God in the flesh. And God sent his very own son into the world that was sinful and rebellious against him because he wanted to reconcile the world to himself. And the only way to get these sinners back was to have someone come and give themselves as a punishment, to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And so God sends Jesus to do this. He dies on a Roman cross. He's buried. Three days later, he's risen from the dead. And he offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to anyone who will turn away from their sin and trust in him for salvation. You can't earn this. You're not sufficient for this. Only God is sufficient for this. And the only thing you can do is just receive it by faith. If you would do that, even this morning, the Bible says you will be saved. And the power of this new covenant ministry would break forth in your heart. And if you haven't done that, I'm praying for you to do that even now. Let's pray together. Father, I pray you'd use your word to shed your light abroad in our hearts. I pray that you'd let your people see what you've given us. I pray you'd tie us and bind us to the means of grace that you've given us. That we would put all our eggs in one basket. We are trusting in your word and your promises. We're proclaiming them. We're living them. We're treasuring them. We're speaking them to one another. We're praying them. Lord, help us to hold on to the lifeline you've given us and to see it as the means by which you were, going, you were changing the world. I pray you'd help us not to get distracted by other things. The devil wants to come and take away the word that's been planted. I pray you would protect us from the evil one. And you'd keep our hearts and minds upon this word so that we could stay connected to the new covenant and what you're doing through the, in the world through your spirit. I pray for those who are here who don't know you, who've never trusted Christ. I pray you convict them of their sin. I pray you convict our children of their sin. I pray you'd draw them to Christ, help them to trust in Christ and be saved. Father, do your work in us and among us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.